Welcome to Bible Insights with Wayne Conrad. God's Word is a light upon our path, and the entrance of His words give light and impart understanding to the simple. Today's topic, the tabernacled Word. And I'm referring to Jesus, and I'm referring to a passage of Scripture found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, and verse 14. In fact, in many ways, this one statement or one sentence of Scripture basically sets up the whole Gospel of John and what it is about. But only when it's interpreted in the context in which it is embedded. So let's hear the word. Here's the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 14 from the English Standard Version. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as you may be aware, there are a number of English translations of the Scripture. And there are various uh, changes, or not necessarily changes, but exemplifications of, of meaning. And so I want to share two or three other translations with you, uh, just so that you can get a flavor of this passage of Scripture. Let's begin with a literal translation. It's called Young's Literal Translation. It's quite old. And the Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of an only begotten of a Father full of grace and truth. That's actually where I get the word tabernacled from, the tabernacled Word. Or from the Amplified Version, which sort of adds meaning or interpretive meaning to the text. And the Word, meaning Christ, became flesh and lived among us, and we actually saw His glory. Glory is the one as belonging to the one and only begotten Son of the Father, the Son who's truly unique, the only one of His kind, who is full of grace and truth that's absolutely free of deception. Obviously, the translators have given us interpretation of what the words mean. Here's a translation that I often like. The Word, Holman Christian Standard, became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And lastly, I want to go back to the Middle Ages and to the first translation of the Bible into English, but from Latin, by the forerunner, one of the forerunners of the Reformation by the name of John Wycliffe. This is what he wrote. And the word was made man and dwelled among us. And we have seen the glory of him as the glory of the one begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in parentheses, he adds, and the word, that is God's Son, is made flesh or man and hath dwelt in us, and we have seen the glory of him the glory as the one begotten of the Father, the Son, full of grace and truth. So he translated the word, and he also gave an interpretive meaning along with the word to help the readers. Now, this is very enlightening to hear the word of God and to hear it several times. You've heard it now five times 
I've read this scripture. But let me go back to the English Standard Version. I want us to examine this sentence in light of the context in which it is embedded. Because this is how we must determine the meaning of any sentence or phrase that's in Scripture. We must interpret by means of context. Context is king. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the purpose and the nature of Jesus of Nazareth's birth is summarized in this one statement. And John is giving us his testimony as an eyewitness, but he's not alone because he uses the plural pronoun, we saw his glory. We have seen his glory. So immediately when we read the text of Scripture, we're confronted with, and the Word became flesh. But the Word is not defined for us. It doesn't tell us who or what the Word is. But the context tells us who or what the Word is. And so what is the context of John 1.14? Well, the context goes all the way back to the first verse of John's Gospel, and it goes all the way down to verse 18, And then at verse 19, there's a transition. It connects with what has been said, but the transition is obvious because it begins a testimony of a particular person that was mentioned in what we call the prologue. So John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 18 is called a prologue. Now that means a word that's said before the word. In other words, the author usually then, is giving us one basic unit of thought that sort of sums up what his writing is going to be about. It tells us, the word before the word tells us the purpose of the writing, and it gives us basically the general outline of what the writing will unfold for us. And so it should be considered very carefully. And when we read the Gospel of John, we should note that everything in the Gospel of John connects with the prologue. The prologue. So let me go back and let's answer the questions as they come up. So who or what is the Word? That's most important as we know who or what John is talking about. So, Verses 1 through 3 tells us about the Word. So when I go back and read it, here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So what have we learned? We've learned that the Word existed in the beginning, Whenever the beginning began, the Word was there alongside God. And not only was he alongside God, but he was God. Now, immediately we better scratch our heads. But here it's telling us that God is a God of relationship, even within himself, from the very beginning. And that the Word is the agent 
of creation. He is the creator God. In this connection, John goes on to make these statements about him. In him was life. So he's the source, the fountain of life. He is life, the everlasting life. He is life that has always existed. But from this life comes any other life in the universe. And he was the light of men. So this has reference to how he functions when mankind comes into the picture. The prologue then goes on to mention another man, a man sent from God whose name was John. We'll come back to him. But again, let's go back. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is speaking to us of the nature of his incarnation. Now, incarnation is simply the word that means became flesh, took on flesh. Now, this does not mean he took on flesh as simply an outer garment, but it means that he became a human being. In other words, he has a true human body, soul, and spirit, a true human mind and body. He is a true human being, but he existed before he became a human being. He existed from all eternity. So the word became flesh. This is the nature of his coming. And in his becoming flesh, he dwelt among us. He lived with us for a period of time. And the word here can be translated tabernacled. Now, there's an allusion here uh, to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament story of God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from Egyptian slavery. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, he took up residence with them and they had pitched their tent at the foot of the mountain. God spoke and instituted the Mosaic law. And then God had a tabernacle constructed in which his very Shekinah glory came to dwell. And that was where Moses went to speak to God face to face as a friend to a friend and gave the people the direction from God. God lived in a tent just like the people lived in a tent. And God moved along in that tent as his people moved along in their tents. So this is what the reference is to. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. But a tent by its very nature is not a permanent structure. And it is a structure that can move. But the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Now, immediately we must consider the idea of in what way did the word become flesh? Does this mean he ceased to be God and simply became human? Well, God cannot cease to be God. No, it does not mean he was subtracting from himself, but he was adding to himself. The word became flesh by addition, not subtraction. And when the word became flesh, God's glory dwelt in him. But it's a hidden glory. But John is going to tell us how that glory is manifested in the various acts that he did that reveals his glory. And this constitutes the testimony that's found in John's gospel, beginning with the testimony of John the Baptist in the wilderness. So the word existed 
He resided elsewhere before he took up the action of the incarnation. Well, where did he dwell? He dwelt in heaven with God and as God. What's the nature of his action? The nature of his action is he became flesh. He did not cease being what he was always, but he took to himself a human nature, something that he was not before, a body, soul, and spirit. He became incarnate by addition, not subtraction. And he dwelt, he took up his residence for a while among us. But that meant it would not remain permanent because after his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended into heaven, which is talked about later in all four of the Gospels. But now John is interested in telling us how they witnessed his glory. Notice what the verse says. The word became flesh and took up a residence among us, and we observed, we saw, we actually with our very eyes experienced the manifestation of his glory. What kind of glory is it? It's the glory of a one and only son from the Father. And it constitutes full of grace and truth. So notice that he comes as the revealer of the Father. He comes to reveal the Father. And he does so in his person, and he does so in his ministry, and in his acts of ministry. And what is the nature of him and as of his revelation? Well, it tells us that he is one who is full of grace. That means undeserved loving kindness. We do not deserve the loving kindness that God has granted to us in giving us the gift of his Son. And he comes in truth, that is, in reality. This is not shadows. This is not uh, something that's not totally truthful. It is total reality with no deception. Pure truth is found in him. And we know this to be the fact because in the context, it contrasted with Moses. Listen to this verse in verse 17. Well, let's go back to verse 16. For from his fullness, that is the fullness of the word made flesh, we've all received grace upon grace. That's favor upon favor, undeserved favor upon favor. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, that's a contrast. Law versus grace and truth. He goes on to say, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this is where we got the concept that I previously stated. It's not shadows, but it's the reality. Here is Jesus. And in Jesus, we see the Father. He tells us his disciples that in John 14, if you want to know the Father, you must know him through the Son. And he declares this in instruction that he gives in John chapter 5 and John chapter 10 and other verses in the Gospel of John. So he comes to make the Father known. He comes to flesh out, to fulfill the Levitical law and its system that all pointed to him. But now the reality to what all the other pointed to has come to pass. So what is the truth he comes to reveal? To be actually, what well, to be the truth that he is actually. Well, 
this truth of his sojourn among us is to reveal to us the purpose of knowing the Father. And how do we know the Father? Well, we know the Father through the Son. So let's go back to an immediate context of verse 14, which is found in the immediate verses right before it, which is very key to this gospel. Here's the immediate context. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He, verse 11, came to his own, that's his own people, his own things, and his own people did not receive him. But, another contrast, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. So now we, we have it before us. Why did he come? He came to reveal to us the Father and so that we could come to know the Father. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do it by receiving him. To receive him is to believe in him, to believe in his name. That is, to believe in his name, his nature, his work, his character, and all the accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And when we believe like this, we have the authority, the right to become the children of God. In fact, we do become the children of God, which implies we're not the children of God in this saving sense before it. And where does this come from? Where does this spiritual birth come from? Where does this ability to believe in the Son and to receive Him in contrast to those who did not? Well, it comes by regeneration. It comes by the working of the Father, the new birth, which is of God, not of man. We're not born again by descent from biology. We're not born again by our own will, the will of the flesh, nor the will of any other man, but we are born of God. So it's the Spirit who testifies to Jesus that enables us to believe by giving us a new mind, a new heart, a new willingness to embrace the Son in faith. Now, the whole purpose of the gospel is John is to give testimonies to Jesus, to his person, by revealing his glory in his acts, his deeds, and his words. In fact, John tells us his truth. John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, the Word who tabernacled among us and was received back into glory. This has been Wayne Conrad with Bible Insights. And the next time, remember that the Word, who was with God and who was God, came among us so that we might know the Father through faith in Him.